I was thinking through this text, and this is a, a marvelous text before us, and it just weighs on my heart in so many ways, thinking about the importance of the message that Paul brings out here in Romans chapter 8. I was thinking about the church, and it always uh, burdens me when people have gone to a ministry and been involved in a church for a while, and they have poured their hearts into it, and then something has come up that has caused difficulties, and there's something other of a church split or differences, and and the church falls apart, and the people end up pulling away, and they, um, they're disappointed by ministry life, disappointed by the personal experience, and some may just pull away from the church altogether and just stay at home and uh, worship God in their own way. What burdens me in the midst of all of that is I understand why it comes up. I understand the, what's at work. That there is an enemy against the church who is seeking to discredit the church, to discredit the work of God, and certainly people become then disenchanted with other professing believers. And I wanted to kind of give us a perspective of why that is to gain a little spiritual insight so we can do the valuation of our own hearts, but we'd also have some wisdom on how to navigate through those kinds of circumstances. Because as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Even if they say, didn't we do all these things in your name, and then we cast out demons in your name, and then we perform many miracles in your name, he will say to them, depart from me, for I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It isn't everyone who professed faith in Christ that have genuine faith. But my burden as a pastor is I want everyone that I shepherd to know clearly where they are in Christ so that they would have the confidence that they indeed will not hear those terrifying words from our Lord, but will actually hear, well done, good and faithful servants. That is what we want to hear. Thinking as we set this up, if we can, turn over to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 13. Matthew, at this point, records for us a tone change in Jesus' earthly ministry. Matthew 13 is a critical turning point as Jesus was ministering. He starts to minister now to, in parables. He's no longer speaking plainly to his audiences. He now speaks to the religious leaders and to the multitudes that gathered around. He speaks to them in parables, but to his disciples, he speaks clearly and gives them the meaning. And in this chapter, Matthew 13, the series of parables, there's one I want to draw your attention to, the parable of the tares and the wheat, starting in verse 24. Here's what Matthew records for us. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Verse 28, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and to gather them up? But he said, no, 
For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both of them to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will, get, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then this, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, and he describes the kingdom of heaven as having two different crops, one of wheat and one of tares, and they grow up side by side and they become evident down the line when, when the wheat starts to bear fruit and the tares produce nothing. So then they are obvious. And the question is, should we separate them at that time? And Jesus says, no, this will come at the harvest. Now, if you jump down to verse 36, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. Then... He left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, those who are the sons of the kingdom are, are those are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. Now Jesus explains this parable to them, says that there are two. There are two that exist side by side, the wheat and the tares, the kingdom, those who are the kingdom of the son of God and those who are the kingdom of the evil one. And they will grow up side by side and they will become a time when they are separated and they're drawn apart and they were revealed. Here, the true wheat are evidenced by those who bear fruit. The tares bear no fruit. They are side by side. The point I want to draw your attention to is that at times, early on, they're indistinguishable. When they're first planted, the seed is indistinguishable. When they're growing up, it's indistinguishable. It becomes evident in time based on what comes out, the fruit that comes out. This is what we're living in today. We're living in this state, in this state that we don't know, sometimes our own hearts or the hearts of others around us. Is someone of God or not? They're operating side by side. And so for us, if we're going to do the kind of proper evaluation and know where we're at, we have to go back to the scriptures and we have to see from God's vantage point what is taking place. Because our enemy would seek to sow among us confusion and lies, even causing one to grow up among us that does not even belong to the Lord. And as I think about, and I just think about the spiritual spectrum that people may be on, there can be some on one end of the spectrum like Judas. They have a seemingly outward life of righteousness, seemingly committed, but heart is far from God. They are dead to the things of God, and eventually they are revealed. 
But closer to uh, godliness, you have someone in the middle who is confused. Somebody who by bad teaching, by corruption uh, of their own understanding, they don't know the scriptures very well, by immaturity, they are not practicing the things they ought to be practicing because of spiritual immaturity or false teaching has led them to difficulty. They are of God, but they are spiritually weak because of false teaching or reliance on things that are not of God, relying on their own their own strength, their own wisdom, their own understanding. And then you have the child of God who is growing in faith and knowledge of truth and practice and is bearing fruit in its various seasons. That is the spectrum of people who come to church at all times. You're somewhere along that spectrum. Well, then one more category, just the outright unbeliever. And you just got drugged to church because somebody says you got to go. So that's the spectrum. You're one of that area in the spiritual spectrum. So then the question for us is, well, we want to be true believers. We want to know the walk be walking in the spirit. We want to know that we have eternal life. How do we have gain that? My answer is and by looking at what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter eight. And turn over to Romans chapter eight. Paul is giving us here in Romans chapter 8 the spiritual wisdom that we would need to be able to walk in the Spirit, to walk according to God's design, to battle against fleshly indulgence in the Spirit, to gain spiritual victory, to have a Spirit-led life that leads through life. Paul's unfolding that here. And it's important for us that we see this and understand the work of the Spirit because when we go into spiritual battle, we don't want to go into the spiritual battle trusting in the flesh, trusting in the wisdom of the flesh, in the strength of the flesh. We want to go into spiritual battle equipped with the Spirit of God, yielding to the Spirit of God. We want God's strength, God's work, God's transformation to be on display so that we know that we're not resting in ourselves and our abilities, but we're resting in the work of God. Because when God comes and He transforms us, we believe upon the gospel and we walk in newness of life, we walk in faith, there's an entire transformation. A transformation of our heart, a transformation of our mind. God changes our will. He changes our affections. He does such a work that entirely transforms us so that we're not resting in fleshly wisdom and strength. We're resting in the work of God. But here's the problem, and I know it very well. I'm a parent. The one thing I'm really good at is raising Pharisees. I can do that. I could tell them the standard, and I could tell them what they need to do every day, And I can hold them accountable to that standard, but here's the one thing I cannot do. I cannot change the heart. God can. All I can do is minister the word of God and pray that God takes that word and converts the child and draws them to himself. And I regularly do that. But I can't change the heart. God has to do that. But what I can do is teach them how to be externally righteous and how to conduct themselves and how to treat adults and how to respond to me. And the temptation for me would to believe that if they do all that well, they must be of God. No, I might have just created a Pharisee. 
I might have just trained them up to be very skilled, externally righteous, but have no heart that's bent towards God. I have created one who, if I'm not preaching to them the word of God and I'm not showing them the scriptures and what the scriptures say about their heart, they might even think they can do it themselves. They might even think by their own obedience that they can draw themselves to God because after all, from the very early age, they've been taught how to pray and taught how to read the scriptures and taught how to respond to authorities and taught how to appreciate others. They might even think that in their own wisdom and in their own strength, they can make themselves right before God. Well, that's a problem. The problem is they can't. But... The natural man thinks, my heart's not too far. I can do this. I can make it. And it's been interesting as a parent watching my family grow up. And almost every kid invariably reached this point where they were striving so hard to do what's right. And they finally got to that breaking point where they said, I can't do it. I want to do it. I want to do what's right. I desperately desire to do what's right. I just can't do it. I, I don't, I, I keep, I'm frustrated that I keep striving, I keep trying, but I keep not accomplishing it. They become overwhelmed by the temptations. They become overwhelmed by their burdens. Reminds me of a time I was counseling someone and they said to me, I just feel like two different people. I feel like at sometimes I want to do the right thing, I delight in the truth, I want to follow God, and then I just rebel. And I just don't know what's going to come out in every moment, every situation. Am I going to be the person who does the right thing, or am I going to be the person who just rebels? I just don't know. I'm constantly struggling. I can't find consistency. I can't find power to resist evil. I, can't, I keep rebelling and falling short, and I don't want to do it. Help me. It's like, man, you're just describing Romans 7, 24 over there. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? See, that's where our kids would go as we teach them the gospel, but their hearts haven't been converted. As we teach them the truth and we call them to practice righteousness, that's exactly what they're going to feel. It's exactly the burden that they're going to bear. It's exactly the self-righteous person is going to bear. They're going to come to that point. I'm trying. I just keep falling short. So what's the difference between what you do and what I'm doing? And the answer is the inviting presence of the Spirit of God and the work of the Spirit of God. That's the difference. The difference is self-righteous person still thinks they can fix their problem by their efforts. And I understand it from a natural perspective. I mean, just think of a natural man sitting there evaluating their life against your life. If you're walking in the Spirit and you're bearing spiritual fruit and you're yielding your life to the truth and they're looking at their life and they're falling short, they just may think, well, I just have to do those things. If I just do what you're doing, then I will be just like you. So that's the natural mind. I just need to do what you're doing, and I will be that. Saying, no, actually, what you fail to understand is this work of God in the heart. And this is what Paul is going to draw our attention to. You and I, when we are uh, growing 
when we believe the gospel, have been born of God, and now yielding to the Spirit, there's a particular work in our life that is led by the Spirit that is being manifest. That separates us from the natural man. It separates us for the one who doesn't have the Spirit of God, who is not born of God. The Spirit of God begins to move and direct us in such a way that sets us apart. Gives us a kind of spiritual power that able to resist the flesh, able to walk in newness of life. But it's that other category of person that I want to identify. So if you can recognize, maybe if you had one of those tendencies and you can put them off, the kind of person that I would call the self-atoner, the self-righteous person. This would have been the Jew that was Romans chapter 7, the person who thought by keeping the law he was going to make himself right before God, this self-atoner. There are some who think, again, I'm just, ah, you know, I, I got 9 out of 10 practices right. The next time I'm going to be 10 for 10, I'm going to have a perfect day. I'm just that close. So if I try a little harder, if I work a little bit harder, I'm going to overcome this. And they start to practice a self-atonement. They may even sin in a significant way, and their sin has come out. And so in this, they think, okay, somehow I've got to start doing what's right so I can overcome this sin. Well, there are ways to identify this self-atoning person. In fact, I have five of them, five evidences of one who is self-atoning. And a self-atoner is this, one who trusts in the fleshly wisdom or strength to be right before God. The kind of person who trusts in their own wisdom or their own strength to be right before God is going to land, have these five characteristics, one or more of them. The first is this, a spiritual instability. They're going to have spiritual instability. They are going to be exactly what Romans seven fourteen through 25 describes all over the place. Desiring at one point to be here but not able to perform it, they are going to, uh, again, be all over, maybe described in the Ephesians 4 kind of category. They're like children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. There's no spiritual stability, no spiritual stability on how to respond to sin in their life or to, to cultivate spiritual appetites. It's just all over the map. That's a self-atoning person. Second characteristic of a self-atoning person is this. They are constantly complaining that others are either hypocritical or judgmental. They're constantly projecting their views on others. Oh, that person's a hypocrite. Oh, that person's judgmental. If you're walking in righteousness and you call them out on a sinful behavior, whether in word or deed, you call their attention to it, oh, you're judgmental. They, they, they discredit anyone else because their own life is falling apart. No one else could possibly be doing anything right. They have to be hypocrites or judgmental. It's a self-atoner striving to do what's right is constantly discrediting those around them because no one else could have spiritual success because I can't have it. Then everyone else also must be falling short. They're condemning others as hypocritical or judgmental. The third quality of a self-atoning person is somebody then who is angry and irritable at God and godliness. Angry and irritable at God and godliness. 
And again, it becomes sophisticated. Sometimes it's overt direction at God, but most of the time it's a private kind of seething, uh, kind of even almost backhanded way it comes out. You know, I'm trying to obey, but God's standard is just too high. I'm trying to do what's right. It's just impossible for me to do. Kind of an irritability at God. Why is the standard so high? Why is righteousness so unrelenting? Why is the standard so exacting? Why can't it be a little lower, a little easier for me to obtain? There's just a constant kind of opposition to godliness in their hearts. Like trying to redefine godliness, redefine love, redefine holiness and righteousness. There's just something to make the standard more attainable so that we can practice it. It's an irritability towards God. It may come out at others who are walking in godliness, but ultimately it's aimed at God. God, your standard is just unfair. I keep trying, but I keep falling short. It's impossible. Fourth characteristic of this kind of self-atoner is this, that their spiritual relationship, their walk with God is best described as a junior high drama rather than faith in God. They're, you know, kind of like the junior high drama. Today, God loves me because I was really obedient. And the next hour, he hates me because I disobeyed. And so you're constantly tossed. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Constantly in this emotional roller coaster of feeling close to God, feeling far away, feeling in despair, feeling overjoyed, and they're tossed all around Rather than thoughts anchored in truth, anchored in promises of God, anchored in what the scriptures say is anchored in in experiences. It's pulled everywhere because they can't seem to piece together consistency. They're frustrated with themselves and then that frustration carries over to God. And then lastly, Fifth characteristic of a self-attorning person is somebody who has an overconfidence in their own abilities and their works. Just overly confident in their own wisdom, their own understanding. They're not teachable. They think they got this. They're just about there. They're going to overcome. You know, they can go on and list all the good things they've done, but they're confident in their efforts there rather than confident in what God has supplied and what God does. This self-atoning person then becomes self-righteous. They become judgmental of others. They are unteachable. They are filled with pride. And they are even angry at God because God's standard is unrelenting. There's no power in that life. There's no power. Listen, there's a whole group of people who lived like this. They put Jesus Christ to death. They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees prayed. The Pharisees gave alms. The Pharisees fasted. The Pharisees taught the word of God. The Pharisees even sought other teachers and listened to them and analyzed what those teachers said and went to the scriptures. They wrestled with the word of God. They were teachers of the law of God, and yet they did not have the power of God in them. They put Jesus Christ to the death. So we don't want to be that. We don't want to be in that place where we are self-reliant, self-willed, self-seeking, trusting in the wisdom of the flesh and battling against the deeds of the flesh with the wisdom or strength of the flesh. We want to be led by the Spirit of God. 
Well, that's exactly what Paul gives us here in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul gives us that kind of spiritual wisdom and understanding that helps us to be able to identify those areas where we might be relying on, on fleshly reasoning or fleshly strength, and we can put it off and be yielding to the Spirit of God. Because we don't want to be self-deceived. We don't want to be relying on our own fleshly wisdom and strength. We want to be relying on the Spirit of God and the graces of God that comes in salvation so that God will lead us through and help us overcome. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to understand here. Now we've looked in this text in Romans 8 so far, 1 through 8, We've seen the first four glorious things that God has given us. He's given us freedom from the wrath of God in verse 1, so we don't have to live under fear of condemnation. So when, when we sin, we're not li- living under this holy dread that we have to pay off that debt. It's been satisfied in Christ. Second of all, we saw in verse 2, we have a new life. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have a new life, this life this law of life, of holiness, of righteousness, the Spirit of God dwells within us that we love and now appreciate the things of God. Thirdly, we saw that, we, that the law of God is satisfied by Christ on our behalf, and that's credited to us. Verse 3 tells us that. So whatever the law demands, both the righteous demands and the punishments are satisfied by Christ. So the law is fully satisfied through Christ who we dwell in, verse 3. And then we saw that we have a new mindset. In verses 5 through 8, we have a new mindset in the Spirit, a new way of thinking, a new way of, of, of processing our world. We, we view God, His truth. We appreciate His truth. We bear out the fruits of what we believe, and we're driven by new motives. Which now leads us to the fifth quality, and is this. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Verses 9 through 17. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. God's Spirit now reigns in us. And there are in this text five ways that we can identify the Spirit dwelling within us. I'll give you two this morning and the other three next week. So don't worry, I won't keep you here all day. But five ways in which we identify the Spirit's dwelling within us. This is how we evaluate ourselves when we go into the spiritual battle. Are we battling according to the indwelling Spirit of God, or are we resting in the flesh, the strength of the flesh or the wisdom of the flesh? Paul's going to draw that out for us here. Now let me just read this so we see here's what Paul wrote. Starting in verse 9. However, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die 
But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In this, again, marvelous text, we see the riches of God's abiding spirit, indwelling spirit within us, and we see the marvelous work of God. Now, this is important for us, and maybe as we head into it to think about here, it's important for us to get a little theology of the Holy Spirit and what the Spirit does. I think one of the most significant distinctions between the Old Testament saint and the New Testament saint is the dwelling of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. In our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 51 verse 11 said this, Do not cast me away from thy presence, and then this phrase, And do not take thy Holy Spirit from me. The Spirit would come, would dwell on a person, and then leave. But the New Testament believer is marked by something different. The New Testament believer is marked by God's regular, continual presence with the believer, the abiding presence of God. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is, don't you recognize God's Spirit has been given to you and He dwells in you? Let me help you understand the Spirit's work. Turn over to the book of Ephesians and just see just a couple of things that are true. Maybe I'll start with Ephesians. Yeah, I'll start with Ephesians 1. I'm going to change it up, actually. Let's start with Romans 10. Turn over to Romans 10. We will come to Ephesians 1, so I didn't turn, take you there without coming to it. So keep your finger there in, Roman, in Ephesians 1, but turn over to Romans chapter 10. And let me just show you this progress. In Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 8, Paul says this, but what does it say? The word is near you near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. And notice verse 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses with salvation. How is one saved? Well, he says, The word is preached, and there is a confession with one's mouth. And when confessing with one's mouth, what? They confess who Jesus is, that he is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead. 
you confess who he is and what God has done, it says, then you shall be saved. Verse 10 explains it. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Jump down to verse 17, Paul says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. How is one saved? The word of God is preached to them as it is proclaimed to them. They believe upon that word. It is through the hearing of the word that faith comes. Now the question is, how, is, how does faith come through the hearing of the word? Well, the answer is, in comes the work of the Holy Spirit. Turn over to 1 Peter. Let me show you from 1 Peter chapter 1. I promise you, we'll get to Ephesians 1 in a moment. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22 and 23. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now notice, for... You have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Jump down to verse 25. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which was preached to you. The word preached, the word proclaimed. As it was proclaimed, it one was caused to be born again. That's why, again, as Paul was saying, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. It is the word of God preached that changes the heart. It's the word of God that causes one to be born again. Now, let me show you one more passage. Turn over to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We'll jump in, start at verse 3 and go through verse 5. Here's what Paul writes to Titus. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but, notice, according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. It was the Spirit which regenerated us, which made us anew, which washed us. What was the Spirit doing? He was taking the Word of God preached to us and converting us, causing us to be born of God. So here's what happened. Someone was sent to preach. Someone was sent out to preach the word of God to you. It might have been your neighbor. It might have been a preacher. It might have been somebody else who ministered the word of God. They proclaimed it to you. You heard the word of God. And as you heard the word of God, the spirit of God took that word and changed your heart. And you called out in faith. You believed upon God because God changed your heart through the preaching of his word. And he did it through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we can look at Ephesians chapter 1. Because then Paul describes the work of salvation here in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is one long sentence in the Greek text. And in this, Paul describes the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in describing the work of the Holy Spirit, we see down in verse 13. 
It says, in him, this is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Okay, so all of that is exactly what I described to you. It was the word of God preached to you. You've heard the message. It was preached to you. You believed upon it. Notice, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. When you were born of God, born from above, you were born as the word was preached to you, you believed upon it, you were born of God, the Spirit of God was given to you and sealed you. Verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What is the work of the Holy Spirit then? The work of the Holy Spirit is to change our hearts with the truth and to seal us with, for redemption. This is the first part of the Spirit's work. So that every believer in Jesus Christ, everyone who has professed faith in Christ, who has been born of God, has the Spirit of God who has given to them and sealed them. This word sealed is really significant because it has the idea of an engagement ring. The Spirit is given to us as an engagement ring uh, that we belong to God. That's why verse 14, he's given to us as a promise, as a pledge, as a, that we have the hope of a, an inheritance. That we're going to be redeemed. That God is going to come and he's going to look upon us. And here's what he's going to look for. When God comes to grab and bring to himself his people, what he's going to look for isn't our good works, it's the, pres- the abiding presence of the Spirit of God, his God's Spirit in you. He grabs us, those who have the Spirit in them, they, are, they belong to him. Now, all of that sets up Romans chapter 8. So turn back to Romans chapter 8. So the most critical question for us is how do I know that I have that work of the Spirit in me? Is it by holy laughter? Is it by rolling around on the ground? Is it by speaking in tongues? Is it by performing miracles? You will find none of those are brought up here. No, it is evidenced by the abiding presence of God's Spirit. And I've got 10 minutes to give you the first two points. So let's do that. First two here is Paul, as I said, there are five points that Paul is going to unfold here. And he's going to give us the five evidence. His first evidence is the evidence of the presence of the Spirit in verse 9. And then we're going to see the evident power of the Spirit in verse 10. And the evident directing of the Spirit in verse 11. And the evident obligation to the Spirit in verse 12 and 13. And then finally, the evident assurance of the Spirit in verses 14 through 17. Let me give you just the first two this morning. The evident presence of the Spirit. Notice verse 9 again. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God of Christ, he does not belong to him. This section, as I pointed out to you before, earlier in our series, Paul gives a series of if statements. These if statements are now personal evaluations. We are evaluating 
where we're at, evaluating our condition. We are called to do the personal analysis to say, am I abiding in the Spirit of God? Am I, is He dwelling in me? Am I yielding to Him? Series of if statements. You see it there in verse 9, verse 10, if Christ is in you. Verse 11, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Down in verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Down in verse 17, if children of God, children, heirs also. If indeed we suffer according to Him. A series of these statements saying, evaluate, test yourself, determine if the Spirit of God is in you. It's examination language. Evaluating. And the phrase he uses in verse 9 is this, Does God's Spirit dwell in you? If indeed the Spirit dwells in you. The word dwell is the idea of, of abiding in. It's the idea of your home or residence. Does the Spirit take up residence in you? It's in your house. You, you are viewed as the Spirit's house. I love that language because that's exactly the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and in chapter 6, when he says, Do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of God dwells in us and abides in us. There is a presence of God's Spirit which dwells in us so that whatever we do, however we operate, we operate with the Spirit of God with us. Now think about that in regards to your spiritual battle. The difference between battling in the flesh and battling in the spirit comes down to this perspective. Am I aware that what I'm about to do takes the spirit of God into that context? This is how Paul applies it. Again, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, just you can listen. Paul says it like this. Here's how he applies this very principle of the spirit dwelling in them. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The first way in which we go into spiritual battle against sin is to remember the Spirit of God is dwelling within us, and we take the Spirit of God into that. And the question is, is that what I want to take the Spirit into? Do I, want the, do I want with my mind, with my hands, with my feet, with my body to take the Spirit of God into that activity? The answer, emphatically, no. We know that. We have the evident power of the Spirit or evident presence of the Spirit within us that we recognize we don't want to carry the Spirit of God into that. We don't want to carry the Spirit of God into those kinds of activities. By the way, just turn back to Romans chapter 6. This is really what Paul is getting at. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, he says, Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We, God's dwelling in us, and now all of our members are His members to give to his activities. So there is then 
the first perspective that makes our battle against the flesh different than the natural man is the awareness of God's abiding presence within us. He dwells within us. The second is the evident power of the Spirit. We see that in verse 10. The evident power of the Spirit. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, you may notice in your translation there that the, if you have the New American Standard, that the, your uh, translation has it as a lowercase s. And their reference there is they believe that the spirit is man's spirit within them. So it either means man's spirit is alive because of righteousness, though the body is dead. But if you have the ESV, or if you have the King James, or you have the NIV, you will notice that the capital, you see a capital S there. The Spirit, referring to the Spirit of God, is alive because of righteousness. I think that's the better translation. I think that is the better interpretation of this passage. Paul's referring to the Spirit here being the Spirit of God. Why? Well, look at the context. It's all about the Holy Spirit. In the whole context, so you would have to be able to explain how we got the focus off of God onto man. That would be the first thing to answer. But then the second, how it is that by righteousness we make our spirit alive. Is that our righteousness? Is that, there's just theological conundrums in there that we just can't answer and Paul doesn't bring up. I think the best answer is exactly as other translations emphasize, this is about the spirit is alive. And the word because isn't there. It's actually a, a, a phrase that means according to. It's according to righteousness. The spirit it lives according, is alive according to righteousness. Here's what, here's what Paul is emphasizing. The evident power manifested in the believer is a believer loves righteousness, desires righteousness, appreciates righteousness. The Spirit produces within the believer an appreciation for the things of God, the things righteousness. You know this. Every believer knows this. I remember um, you know, I, before I was saved, I, I knew of God. I would say of, uh, you know, of myself, I had a God consciousness, but I wasn't a believer I know that because I even had a friend sharing the gospel to me, and I remember distinctly saying to him, I know God exists, but I don't need him. There was no appreciation for the things of God in my heart before I was saved, but after I was saved, I recognized that all of a sudden the appreciation for the things of God, I I not only needed God, I needed him every moment of every day. There was a tire transformation that I know didn't come from me. It came from the work of God. Appreciation for the things of God. Paul will say something like that to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The inability of the natural man to appraise the things of God because they're spiritually appraised. He builds that same idea. There is the evidence here. The Spirit of God produces an appreciation for righteousness. The things of God. That is the evident power demonstrated. So you can know this. In any particular moment, you could ask yourself in a situation, do I appreciate righteousness? Am I pursuing righteousness? Am I delighting in righteousness? Am I upholding righteousness? This is an evidence of the Spirit of God dwelling within me. I want the things of righteousness. 
I want to walk according to righteousness. Now, those are the first two points. We're out of time for the others, and we'll pick them up next week. But those are just a, even a beginning assessment of how do I know the Spirit of God is dwelling within me? Well, first of all, I know the Spirit of God is dwelling within me because this is the work of, the, of salvation. It's the work of God. He dwells within me. And now when I go into spiritual battles, I go in recognizing, I go with the Spirit of God being in me. Now I battle that fleshly desire differently because I'm battling now with awareness of God's presence. Second of all, I know by the appreciation for righteousness, the desire for righteousness. Now listen, brethren, this isn't to say we're perfect in our practice all the time, but my hope is this for all of us. When we head into spiritual battles, when we head into the spiritual difficulties, that we would spend less time trusting ourselves, our wisdom, our strength, and more time trusting the Spirit of God and the work of God, yielding in faith to His work. Then we're going to find the spiritual victory we need to overcome. Because it's not of the flesh, but it's of the Spirit. We don't walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. And we are sanctifying our hearts and minds to trust in the work of God And it is through God's abiding presence that he transforms us into the image of Christ. And we will see that next week, particularly in verse 13. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these rich truths. Thank you for your work. For indeed, you demonstrate the riches of your work in accomplishing what no man can accomplish. For nobody can rescue themselves. No one can deliver themselves. We are hopeless. We are lost. We are so far separated from you that we are without hope and even dead. But you are merciful and gracious. You come. You rescue us. You deliver us through Christ. You set us free. You give us new life. You have sealed us with your spirit so that you can radically transform your people. And so we rejoice in what has been accomplished on our behalf through Christ and what you are presently doing in our midst. And so we pray, may we be the people who leave with greater faith, greater confidence in your work, and less self-reliance and more faith, trusting in your marvelous work. Thank you for this study. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.